On this episode of China Unscripted, China has a plan for world domination, and it's been very successful. Find out how the Chinese Communist Party has already invaded America. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Joining us once again is Ian Easton, Senior Director of the Project 2049 Institute and author of the new book, The Final Struggle, Inside China's Global Strategy. Ian, thanks for getting back on the podcast. Chris, Shelley, Matt, it is great to see you guys. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. Absolutely. Well, so first of all, congratulations on your new book. I, I love how, how sexy the title is and the book cover is. I always judge a book by its cover. <laughs> so the final struggle is something you want to read? Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. like. But the, the, the real question is, can there be a sequel? Like, finaler struggle? The finalist? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. Uh, really, really appreciate it, Chris. I think you're going to love the book. You know, just like my last book, The Chinese Invasion Threat, uh, this book is a romantic comedy. It, it really <laughs> is. Uh, so the last book, right? Do you guys remember the, the show we did? Yeah, I mean, the, the book is on our shelf, Ian. Yeah, so how Xi Jinping loved Taiwan so much he wanted to, to, to unify together with it. So, right. so the new book is about China's global strategy. And it's all about how the Chinese Communist Party loves loves humanity and, and mankind so much that just wants to to collectivize everything and, and bring everything into uh, the house of China. Is is there any limits to the size of Xi Jinping's heart? I don't think there is. I, th I think both his mind and his heart are limitless, just incredibly expansionistic. Yeah, you know, he did just publish a book about human rights. Uh, yeah, I heard they gave it to, to Michelle the, Bachelet. Yeah, yeah, the UN human rights chief when she uh, didn't have an investigation of Xinjiang. Uh, you know, I would just like to, at this point, interject really quickly. Um, Lao Y86 just did a video about how China tried to bribe him to change his China content. And I feel like this would be a very, this was a very good example of the kind of content we could create if China were to bribe us. What kind of content? Well, we were just talking about how much Xi Jinping, oh, how big Xi Jinping's heart is. Yes, yes. that would yeah. do great uh, on our channel. Xi Jinping's I, big heart. Hey, I'm sure the CCP can give us more than YouTube is giving us. <laughs> great, but, with no strings attached. None at all. I mean, that's what your book is about, right, Ian? That fact that like the, the Chinese Communist Party loves the world with no strings attached? No strings attached. Absolutely not. So, you know, viewers, if, you know, all of you watching, you're obviously savvy on China if you're watching China Uncensored. Uh, please rest assured that if you buy electronics, for example, made by the Chinese Communist Party, you know, it may have a backdoor in it that the PLA put there or, or MSS put there. And they may be collecting your personal and private information, but that's only because they want to have a closer relationship with you and ultimately take better care of you. I can't take care of myself. Clearly we need. <laughs> oh, Clearly we need. All right. Well, this, so, you know, with, with in terms of China, people have been throwing out, you know, world domination a lot. Uh, but, you know, in your book, you say the part while the party has plans for that, it's not what most people think it is. So. What is the Chinese Communist Party's plans for world domination? You know, when we think about this issue, 
we tend to think about the Cold War, we think about the Soviet Union, especially the early days of the Cold War, right? The 50s and the 60s. We talk about Sputnik moments. Uh, or we think back to World War II. We think about Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And so we, we tend to think of it in this very militaristic way. We think of it in, in Defense Department kind of terms. But actually, one of the things that, that came out of the research for this book is that that's not how the Chinese Communist Party thinks of it. So even though they're engaged in the largest peacetime military buildup the world has seen in, in a century, and they are, and it's, it's incredible and it's disconcerting, uh, actually, that's just one instrument of power that they are cultivating. So there's also economic power. They're very, very predatory in the economic space. They're very competitive. Same in technology, same in, in the narrative, right? They're, they're hoping to achieve narrative dominance as well. So that's control over media, control over Hollywood, control over what does and does not get published by major publishing houses like Cambridge Press, uh, and what ultimately does and, and does not get written by professors and analysts and, and academics and scholars. Um, and they're very good at it. It's a strategy that up until now seems to be working quite well for them. Well, I think another thing that's interesting about this book is, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party goal is to take over Taiwan. But that really isn't what the party's end goal is. No, not at all. I, th I think that's a common misunderstanding or a myth that people sometimes have. Uh, the, the first myth is that the CCP is primarily interested and only interested in survival. Right. The CCP wants to make a world that's safe for authoritarianism so it can stay in power. Um, and then the second myth is that in terms of global expansionism or regional expansionism, they're really only interested in annexing or conquering Taiwan and that they would stop after that and that they would not continue to spread. But actually, when you read Xi Jinping thought books on Xi Jinping thought books that Xi Jinping is purported to have written or textbooks or internal military documents that talk about China's global strategy, it's clear that they're driven by a Marxist-Leninist ideology that is fundamentally uh, internationalist in outlook, that they are trying to create a new world order. And that's the term that they use is the term of art for it. Um, and they want to dominate and they want to spread Chinese style uh, or CCP style, rather, authoritarianism around the world. And they're working very hard to do that. Well, so the Chinese Communist Party internally is using the phrase new world order as something that they want. Yeah, so they're, one of the, the things that they do brilliantly, and you really have to hand it to them, is they're great at using euphemisms. So euphemisms are bland or bureaucratic or even pleasant-sounding terms that they use to talk about things that are actually very, very ugly, very unpleasant, in some cases, terrifying. Uh, and so that is one of the euphemisms they use, creating a new world order. And they describe it as a community of common destiny for all mankind. Something they also translate sometimes as uh, a shared future for all mankind or all humankind. And that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I mean, who could be against community, right? Wait, so the whole time Xi Jinping has been talking about a shared future, he's actually talking about a new world order led by the Chinese Communist Party? He's talking about more than that. 
he's talking about not only world domination, he's talking about world socialism, international communism. I mean, this has been the, the driving goal for all communist uh, regimes, um, dating back to the, the Bolsheviks in the early Soviet Union. Um, they've all made a go at it. Uh, nobody's ever been able to achieve it. These regimes tend to uh, eat themselves alive at a certain point because they, they do become one-party dictatorships and they become very, very repressive. Um, but in this case, China's been remarkably successful. And one of the reasons they've been successful is because they can use this kind of really flowery, pleasant terminology to describe something that is very anti-American, very anti-human rights, anti-democracy, and really ultimately Orwellian. I mean, I guess... Well, I just just add, like, you know, you say, like, shared destiny for all mankind. That does sound very nice until you think, like, wait, this is a regime that, like, uses rape and sterilization and ethnic cleansing. It's like, what kind? I don't know if I want to share this future. It's more of a threat. I mean, you'll like. be fine as long as you're part of mankind. Well, right? no, yeah. it's like they're, if the, they're, they're, all mankind will share the same horrible fate well no, i guess i was thinking about the fact that like mao zedong would talk about like the people right mm -hmm. like the people's democratic dictatorship and it was like the people like counter-revolutionaries are not the people oh, rightists yeah. are not the people so as long as you were a member of the how people how quickly you would find out you're not part of mankind yeah yes we're, we'd we would be an ethnic minority <laughs> Uh, well, we were, we would be counter-revolutionaries. That's probably first. I proudly yeah. describe myself as a counter-revolutionary. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, when you walk down the street in New York City. It's the first thing I say to people. Yeah. Um, Ian, I wanted to go back to this idea of the China's Marxist-Leninism being internationalist, because I think... Uh, when people look at the Soviet Union, for example, they think of that type of international communism where they are trying to foster um, communism in Latin America, in you know the global south, like all these different areas. But people don't seem to connect that with the CCP's ideology. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, when we think of the Bolsheviks, for example, and especially Lenin, it was clear you had Communist International, um, you had, you know, Comintern, you had organizations that were explicitly spreading communism around the world. Uh, and they were doing so successfully, right? They spread it to China, they spread it to Cuba, they spread it to North Korea, uh, to Cambodia and a number of other countries. We tend to forget that that was ab absolutely what Mao Zedong set out to do as well. And Deng Xiaoping continued that legacy. He just used different means to achieve the same objective because he came to the conclusion that Mao's strategy of openly doing it, you know, the way Stalin did, um, was not working. So China was going to have to, to gain a tremendous amount of economic clout and technological clout and diplomatic clout for that strategy to work. But the objective is the same. The organizations involved are the same. You know, organizations like the United Front Work Department. Um, Communist International now today has morphed into the International Department uh, in China. And so even though Xi Jinping, and it started before Xi Jinping, it really started under Hu Jintao, is very nationalistic. In fact, after the Tiananmen Square massacre, there was this movement, right, to instill this patriotic fervor into the youth of China. 
and it's very, very nationalistic. Uh, it's it's extremely nationalistic, in fact. So so much to the point where it leads to some fanatical behavior. That actually happened with the Soviet Union. It's happened with almost every communist government around the world. Is that at a certain point they do indulge in nationalism, but they still are telling themselves, they're telling their own people that they're doing it on you know for the sake of all humankind. And so today, when you read books about Xi Jinping thought, he does talk about how the whole world should follow China's model and how Chinese communist culture is superior to all other cultures and how they are going to absorb the best and the brightest from around the world, the best elements of civilizations and cultures from around the world into the Chinese led collective. And so there's still a very strong element of, of nationalism there, um, but they're doing it, you know, under the guise of trying to to um, improve the entire global order and to collectivize uh, everybody. But are they just not using the words that we would expect them to use? Is that what you're saying? Actually, what I'm what uh, the story that I tell in this book, and one of the things that really shocked me in doing the research is they use the exact terms that we would expect them to use. And they say crazy things like we want to achieve world socialism and, and we aim to achieve international communism. Um, and this is not just in speeches that Xi Jinping has given, which have remained untranslated until now, um, but also CEOs of technology companies in China. That have said with the with the technologies that we are developing, we believe we can achieve international communism in our lifetime. Uh, th this comes from major technology companies, but this is something that, for whatever reason, has gone untranslated until now. Even public documents, public speeches that you can go on YouTube and watch, uh, that have been given in the Great Hall of the People, they've never been translated. The, the China Studies community for whatever reason, has not has not done that. And I was very surprised in reading some of these documents, just how, how confident they are and how unabashed they are about their objectives. Well, this is something we've talked about a lot on the show, the, the idea that like the Communist Party is very open and transparent about its goals. It's just the West never seems to actually listen to them or take them at their word. Yeah, that's the thing, I think, is like, like we don't take it seriously. Yeah, they want to, you know, undermine us and spread international communism, but they don't mean it. Let's do business with them. It, the, there's so much like they don't really mean it when it comes to especially like all the, um, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics, like when they get that kind of language, which I understand is super bureaucratic and boring to listen to. I think so. Maybe there's just a element of like tuning it out or feeling like, ugh, like or, it's, it, they, it's not real. They're just saying this because. Or they as have Ian to. says, like they just they're not translating some of these speeches, and so, you know, that's part of the value of this book. It's like, yeah. yeah, but I mean, even when they talk about socialism with Chinese characteristics, like if they're Marxist-Leninist, they know because they've read Marx that like Marx considered socialism to be like part, like a step towards communism where communism was the destination and socialism is the path to get to communism, right? It's not like it's its own end necessarily. Yeah, it's a step-by-step so, -step process, right? 
is first, your country becomes a socialist one-party dictatorship, the way China is today, and the way China has been since 1949. That's the first step. Then you spread that to other countries around the world. So all countries are socialist one-party dictatorships, you know, that follow your model uh, and ideally will listen to you and, and be puppets for you. And then ultimately, somehow in the process, you're going to achieve world socialism, where all countries look the same in terms of their their governance regime. And then magically, and it's there's a lot of magical thinking that's involved, magically, uh, governments will just fall away and borders between countries will just melt away and everybody will join this wonderful utopian paradise on earth and it'll be the best, you know, the highest achievement of the human story will be uh, obtained and, you know, humankind will reach its full potential and it will be paradise. That That's what they actually say. Wow. Yeah, there'll be no borders, but we'll all be part of the HUCO system. So we, we won't be able to travel to like live in a new place unless we get permission from the government. Well, so I think this is an important question. What will what, what is the world that China is trying to create look like? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening don't see how like, you know, America will become like a one party socialist state. Well, depending on who the audience members are, maybe. But uh, yeah, like how how does this how does China's world plan like how does that how do how would that happen to america what does this look like well i mean you guys have already felt this i think many americans already feel this it's a growing pressure to self-censor uh it's the idea that if you say anything that is politically unpalatable to china that you could be demonetized by youtube for example or the algorithms in, in Twitter may not carry you as far as they otherwise might, right? If you work for the NBA, they'll just fire you. If you work for Marriott International and you like a tweet, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, if you like something that the Dalai Lama has written, it doesn't matter that you live in, in Omaha, Nebraska, and you're an American citizen, you will get fired. And we have seen case after case of this, you know, it's, it's authoritarianism, with Chinese characteristics in America already. Um, I've spoken to many university professors, especially young professors who are working on tenure. Uh, we talk about China, we talk about the awesome research they're doing, and then the pressure that they feel and the the inability that they have to publish, frankly, some of the things that they're working on. Now, I know that happens in the think tank community as well. Um, and you guys know it, how it happens in, in media. And of course, we all know that it happens in Hollywood as well. I mean, we've had two movies recently where they did not censor themselves for political reasons, right? To, to suit the taste of, of the Chinese Communist Party. That was Top Gun 2, and it was the recent Spider-Man movie. But both of those movies initially did take money from Chinese government-affiliated organizations and they did almost censor themselves. In fact, Top Gun 2, as you guys know, they, they did censor themselves in, in the teasers. And it was only after the Chinese entities pulled out their funding that they went forward with the movies. And what's remarkable about that story to me is those are the first movies made in 20 years, act, literally in 20 years, <laughs> that, that have not bent to Chinese censorship. If you look at almost any other movie that's been made for the last two decades, uh, they have. And so these are examples of how it's already starting. What it would ultimately look like uh, is unclear. 
You know, we've never seen anything like that. I don't believe we will see it in the United States. I think that uh, democracies have tremendous uh, competitive advantages. And I think once we wake up to the threat that we face from the Chinese Communist Party, I think we'll do quite well, actually, in the competition. I think we have a lot of latent advantages, uh, a lot of instruments of, of statecraft that we can use. The problem is, I think our government is still uh, kind of sleeping at the wheel. Well, one thing I'm concerned about is uh, there was a recent study by the Brookings Institution that showed uh, China, Chinese state-run media is often getting into the top search results for uh, Google, for YouTube, for Microsoft, Bing, and that that essentially means the Chinese Communist Party is shaping how Americans view important China issues. And so my concern is when you, when some people hear China talking about international socialism, they they will think of like, oh, Nordic countries, this will be great. Uh, and then people will make, you know, decisions in the, in elections, they'll vote for these kinds of things. Uh, what is, what is the risk of that? Like, how, how do you distinguish, how do you distinguish for people that, you know, what, what the Chinese Communist Party is talking about is not Norway. Well, there's no risk at all of voting for a candidate who wants to move or, or nudge American policy towards the Scandinavian model or even the Japanese model or the Taiwanese model. I mean, these are all flourishing, wonderful democracies with very high human development index scores, actually higher than ours here in America, that do have socialist leans, but they're, they're uh, social democrats. They're not communists, not even close. They're not alt-left uh, governments. Uh, and that's really what the Chinese Communist Party is. It's an extremely left-wing, militantly left-wing organization. Um, and so what we need to worry about, I think, in terms of politics is a battle between the extreme right, so the fascists or, or you know, neo-Nazis, that type, and then the alt-left. Because whenever that's happened historically, and it's happened in a number of cases historically, and that's what happened to Russia. Uh, that's why the Bolsheviks were able to take over is because they had an extremely repressive right-wing government. That's what happened in China, actually. You know, Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT, the early days of the Republic of China, that was an extreme right-wing regime. It was very, very repressive. Uh, and so there was this battle that went on, and the the, um, the Chinese communists were able to infiltrate and ultimately crumble that regime. And so when you look at the history of the international communist movement, they tend to be most successful in countries that are not democracies. They tend to be most successful in authoritarian countries. And so as long as the United States remains a healthy democracy with all of the, the values and, and principles uh, that we hold dear, then we'll, I think, be quite safe. Uh, if we edge towards authoritarianism and immoderate politics, right now I think our political um, system is actually much more moderate than we get, uh, we get credit for. But if we start to get immoderate, then, uh, then we need to watch out. Now, you did mention that you felt um, the Biden administration has sort of been asleep on, at the wheel. Uh, as far as China. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Oh, I think all uh, administrations have been asleep at the wheel. I think the Trump administration, large portions of it were asleep. Uh, certainly the current administration, uh, they have, uh, they've indicated that they're, they're still kind of sleepy, you know, they're, they've not woken up. Um, and then that, that was the case. It's been the case really since we started to normalize relations with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and we still see this debate. We see a, a China policy community that is really at war with itself. And this was on front and center on full display when Secretary Blinken recently gave his big China speech. Because on the one hand, he came out very articulately, very accurately describing this genocidal regime that is actively seeking to undermine American principles and values and to destroy the liberal open world order that the United States helped create in the wake of World War II. Uh, you know, this is a government that's hostile, right? Openly hostile. And it's building up its military in, in, and it's exercising its military in very coercive ways. But then the speech transition, there was that moment where our Secretary of State then started to talk about how we wanted to actually continue to trade with China, that we don't want to decouple. We want to continue to do business with this regime and how actually the Biden administration, according to that speech, is actually looking to deepen cooperation with China in a whole host of global issues, such as fighting climate change and fighting proliferation and things of that nature. To me, that is a China policy that's at war with itself because never in the foreign policy history of the United States uh, has a, a government, any administration come out and said, yes, that regime is hostile. Yes, they're committing genocide. And yes, we want to do business with them. It's the most yeah. accurate, I think, yeah. of any. I, I mean, well, it, I mean, it, he didn't quite say, yes, we want to do business with them. That he said we, want to, we need to cooperate with them. On, on a bunch of issues, yeah. And we don't want to decouple. It, yeah. That's code for yeah. we want to continue business. Well, also what was interesting was what was not said. Um, they, he didn't mention anything about you know China being a Marxist-Leninist well, state. I don't know that the people in the Biden administration think it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, and that was interesting to me about Lincoln's speech is that he was talking about, like you said, Ian, he so correctly diagnosed a lot of the things that the CCP is doing now in the world. But like there was no like there was kind of it was phrased in kind of a way that was like if we could only like work together or if the uh, you know, like they, they want to destroy the international uh, liberal order, but like they shouldn't want to. They should just not destroy it. And there was just no like acknowledgement or understanding of why they want to destroy the international order. With better order. diplomacy, we'll make them change. No, we don't want to make them change. That was specifically in the speech that like we're not trying to change them, right? Which is also bizarre. I mean, that's just absurd. When has the U.S. government ever said this regime is committing genocide and we don't want to change them? I mean – you guys, we all grew up around the same time. We're, in the we're 90s. all about regime change, right? Right. I, go, well, no, go to Iraq, regime I, change. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to go there. I was just going to say we all grew up in the 90s, 80s, 90s, right? We all watched Schindler's List when we were kids. We all read the diary of Anne Frank. 
Schindler's all, List when we were kids? I, I, I watched it when I was a kid. Right. No, okay. I, I I watched it. I was traumatized, but it was it was, you know, worthwhile. But but there was that moment in your high school education, at least, if not your college education, where you say, and uh, all, I think most American kids come to this moment that we will never let this happen again. I remember that clearly at my high school. And I remember visiting the Holocaust Museum in D.C. when I was 17. And everybody said, we will never let this happen again. And here we are today. And China is committing another genocide. And the U.S. government is saying, yeah, it's bad, but we don't want to decouple. Yeah, no, I, I remember in high school thinking, we'll never let this happen again unless that regime gives us money and we need to work with them on global issues. And you did not so, think so that, that there was always an asterisk in my mind. <laughs> okay. It's a it's sort of, it, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it was a sort of a, a, a moral flexibility that I always had to feel like, you know, like sometimes you just got to work with the worst uh, is, you know, as long as, as long as there's some, some financial benefit. Once again, let me just tell the Chinese Communist Party, we are open to bribery. They, they just they never, never try offered. with you, right? No, yeah. I, 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 I honestly, I've been disappointed for like nine years. <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking about this, Ian, as you were talking about like watching Schindler's List or things, you know, even from elementary school, there were kid appropriate, like I read Number of the Stars and the upstairs room, like things about the Holocaust and about, you know, World War II. I don't remember ever reading anything in school or really learning about what happened under the Soviet Union or, you know, oh, other, more. like it's great famine, any communist country, China. really. Yeah. Like, I mean, of course, a lot of my history classes just kind of gave up before the early 20th century. But well, it's yeah, because there was a lot of uh, we, we ran out of time to cover history. No, yeah. it's because I think a lot of people friendly to the Soviet Union were in the American education system and didn't want to. It became too difficult to talk about things that there right. was disagreement on. I, I think there's another issue, which is that like like every regime that comes to power has like certain things that they say that sound really good uh, and then horrible things that happen when they actually come to power. Right, so like the things that communism talks about on the surface, they can sound good, like you know more equality and like you know more power for the people, a shared future, a shared for future mankind. for mankind, right? And like like one of the things that we actually we didn't really learn about in in history when studying the Nazis is I remember like I never learned about any of the beautiful things that Hitler had promised, and the reason this is important is because. Like, of course, the schools don't want to tell you about all the things that Hitler promised, like, oh, you know, better order and like art and jobs and employment. And like, like it sounded beautiful to people at the time, which is why so many people accepted it. And I think if you don't understand, like if you don't hear the beautiful promises, uh, then followed by the genocide, like you don't understand that, oh yeah, beautiful promises can lead to genocide because they're just lies or they're they're part lies but they're they're like part of the the, the whole story right and i think so you you get the horrible part of of nazism fascism and you learn the beautiful parts of communism and you don't understand that like both of them kind of start with beautiful promises and end with horrible genocide yeah absolutely i mean the alt left and the alt right are equally fanatical they both ultimately lead their followers into one-party dictatorships that are totalitarian in nature, 
uh, and they tend to espouse the same ultimate uh, governance regimes and they tend to do the same evil things, um, only they use different ideology to do it, right? The, the Nazis used this uh, national socialism. So it's hyper-national. It was uh, anti-Jew and they, they used Jews as the scapegoat. And that's, you know, that was, and it, and it was clear to, to many people, although many actually ignored a lot of the things that Hitler was saying and how how full of hatred he was. Um, and it wasn't clear really until 1939 to, to many statesmen around the world and, and to many elites around the world. Uh, the communists do the same thing, except they don't talk about a certain ethnic uh, group. They talk about class struggle. So they, they portray elites, uh, the wealthy landowners, CEOs, business leaders, anybody who has any money or any property as being evil and repressing everybody else. And so they have to be overthrown by, by poor people, by, by the working class. But it's the same thing. It's, it's a, a strategy for dividing a society and ultimately pushing into power a very, very dangerous and very um, ultimately dark regime. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Like, you know, we've all heard the, you know, that that poem, like, you know, first they came for the gypsies, but I didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I for a long time, I always took that as meaning like representing people's apathy towards things happening to other people that they weren't a part of. But I realized what what that really is, is like, you know, people at the time, they hated the gypsies. And that's what they they do. They make they make these regimes take groups, make you hate them. And so you are okay with whatever the party or the regime does to them. And that's like what you're saying, you know, you know, like, oh, it's, it's the landlords that are oppressing people. Oh, it's these counter-revolutionaries, et cetera, et cetera. It's always about making a group that it's okay to treat them like they're not part of mankind and the shared future. I remember even when I was a student, uh, and I, I, so I did my study abroad at Fudan University in Shanghai back in 2004. And after I finished the semester there at the university, I backpacked across China. And I went from by train from Beijing out to Ningxia, uh, the Hui Autonomous Muslim Region. You know, that's, that's an Orwellian term, isn't it? Autonomous. Um, it was actually a police state. Uh, and then went out to Urumqi and, and down to Kashgar and Xinjiang. And I remember telling all of my uh, teachers and classmates at, uh, at the university there in Shanghai what my plans were for the summer. And everybody told me, you should not go to Xinjiang. Xinjiang has Uyghurs. Uyghurs are violent. Uyghurs are bad. Uyghurs are, you know, they all hated Uyghurs. And they didn't know why they did. And they also had very bad things to say about Tibetans because the Communist Party has long had these campaigns where they'll target um, ethnic groups, um, also targeted Falun Gong, of course. And so wherever you go in the hotels, there'd be signs that would say no Falun Gong welcome. Um, and so this is one of the, the tactics that not only the Nazis used, but also the Chinese Communist Party uses. They're really yeah. good at it. Actually. They're, they're, they're really yeah. good. I mean, I, like, I think Falun Gong is an interesting one because like it went from something that was like the most popular Qigong practice in China in the 90s to within like a couple years, like everyone hated them somehow. Like, like their, their propaganda campaign against Falun Gong was so effective that like you could talk to people 
by like 2001 or 2002. And they would be like, oh yeah, they're like horrible. They like slit their children's bellies open, like all sorts of like insane things. And it was just like, like that, like they flipped a switch and the hate came on. They can turn on, they can turn their population on a dime. Yeah. Uh, and they're, and I don't think most Americans realize this, but they're doing this to America now where they're fostering an active hatred for all things American. And that was not the case. When I was in China, there was still a lot of admiration, uh, Nike, Starbucks, KFC, McDonald's, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of positive sentiment towards Americans up until much more recently that they've turned that. And so now their propaganda apparatus is openly in the movies they make, in the things they say on their nightly news, in the textbooks at their school, they're openly saying to their own people that the Americans want to bring us down and that the Americans are bad. The Americans are the enemy. And they're instilling this anger towards Americans and all thing, all things America. So, for example, in uh, the recent Spider-Man movie, uh, Sony was told they were giving an ultimatum by their Chinese partners that you have to get rid of the Statue of Liberty, that we don't want to see patriotic American symbols in your movie. Luckily, Sony told them to take a hike and they kept this all the Statue of Liberty scenes. It was critical of the movie and they made a half a I think they made something like half a billion dollars on the film or maybe even more. It was very, very successful financially for Sony. Uh, in the recent Top Gun movie, it was the same issue where the Chinese partners, the investors, told the makers of Top Gun 2 that they did not want to see all of this pro-America, pro-U.S. military, uh, all the symbolism in there, that they wanted this to be actually anti-America and unpatriotic and make the U.S. military look dark which is what's happened actually in a lot of movies. Um, and in the case of, of uh, Top Gun 2, of course, the studio told them to take a hike and they did. And, and Top Gun 2 is fantastic. Um, but other movies, not so much. I mean, you look at First Man, uh, which is about Neil Armstrong and the landing on the moon. Uh, that had a Chinese uh, state affiliated, um, state, state and party affiliated uh, producer and funder. And so they actually got the studio in Hollywood to take off the scene of the American flag on the moon, you know, that, that iconic scene. They actually, if you watch the movie, it portrays the U.S. Air Force as very, very cold, heartless. It portrays NASA, you know, one of America's most popular and, and famous institutions. It portrays NASA as being almost evil. I mean, just very cruel to the astronauts. It portrays the U.S. Congress in the worst light possible, uh, and that's happened to a lot of a lot of movies that have taken money from from the Chinese government. Interesting because I usually think about like the other side of it, like The Martian, right? Where the one with Matt Damon, he gets stranded on Mars, right? That's the Martian. Yeah, that's the Martian. Right. So like, there's a like a key point in there where like, you know, everything's going to be like doom, right? But then the Chinese space agency steps in and completely saves the day. Right? Which what is also interesting about that movie is they have this extended scene where like they're going to launch a rocket to Mars to like give Matt Damon supplies. And they have this whole thing about like, you know, the characters like, oh, do you believe in God? Uh, I don't know, but I'm praying for this one. And it explodes. Total failure. Yeah. You're, and that's like a message. But what, you're what, right. what, it's, it's, it's all like atheism and science yeah. and, and anti sort of spirituality. Well, I mean, it is a movie about 
I know, but science. But like, I think your point is interesting because, well, also The Martian was based on a book, so I'm not sure that was like the CCP specifically influencing Hollywood so much because the plot point is in the book. But sure. I think it's what is interesting about that is that there is a scene in there where the Chinese scientists are talking to each other mm-hmm. about how. Like, oh, you know, will our government approve it? And it's kind of like, eh. So they were like, we'll just do it on a science to science, like, base. Like, we're just going to do it scientist to science. So it kind of makes, even though there's kind of an acknowledgement that the Chinese government would not like to help the U.S. government, they're like, you know, the Chinese scientists are above that, right? Like, Right. Like this idea that it's a totally private organization that has its own, it can do what it wants. Well, so this is the concern. Like we were talking earlier about, you know, how Google and YouTube and Bing search results go to Chinese state-run media. There's a lot of ways the Chinese Communist Party is influencing how Americans think about a whole host of issues. I mean- Hollywood is a perfect case. I think for that one, they're right now able to do that because not a lot of people are writing stuff about Xinjiang, Uh right? Like- if you Google Xinjiang, it's going to be mostly, if you go to YouTube and search for Xinjiang, it's going to be like 90% CCTV or CGTN uh, stuff because they just pump out more things than uh, anybody else. Well, yeah, because the Chinese state, a- state apparatus can push out a infinite amount of supply on any topic. Right. And, and but, of course, like, you know, if you want to watch footage, it's like, like, we can't go, like we, China, uncensored or unscripted, we, we can't go to Xinjiang and shoot footage of stuff that we want, right? But Xinhua or New China TV and CGTN have like a complete monopoly on the ability to actually cover things. But, but Ian, I think uh, uh, something you've, you've touched on and it's a very interesting point in the book is that you say uh, the Chinese Communist Party has dropped an act that uh, what we're seeing now is what the goal always was. The goal being, you know, world domination, that shared future of mankind. Uh, That's interesting because, as you mentioned, there's sort of this war in the China policy crowd of like uh, saying, no, 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 it's it's actually just Xi Jinping that is the problem. The Communist Party is fine. We can go back to, if we oust Xi Jinping, we can go back to the way things were. That's sort of the longer telegram thing. So what is going on there? Like, was this an act? Is it Xi Jinping himself? No, it's absolutely not Xi Jinping. It's the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, Xi Jinping is a symptom, but he's not the disease. The, The party has produced one dictator after the next since starting with Mao. And even Deng Xiaoping, who is revered, especially in the, I think, the China studies community and the business community as being this great visionary, this is the guy who ordered tanks to kill thousands, if not tens of thousands of students, to literally run over them in Tiananmen Square and in the streets of Beijing. Um, He was an absolute dictator. And the same applied to Jiang Zemin, the same applied to Hu Jintao. The only difference with Xi Jinping is he's more transparent. The Chinese Communist Party is not transparent, um, although they are about their ultimate objectives, but about their, you know, their means and their ways and, and their covert operations around the world to get, you know, to get people to, to self-censor, for example. 
uh, that happens behind uh, you know the curtain, the veil that 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 happens in a under a cloak of opacity. But Xi Jinping himself is much more openly dictatorial. He is engaged in uh, now we're going on ten years of nonstop purging, nonstop repression with no no let up, no break. Uh, not even the veneer of inner party politics. So it used to be the idea that different factions would rotate in and out of power, um, that there were informal term limits that were honored by the chairman of the CCP. That's, of course, Xi Jinping has gotten completely away with, you know, away from that. He's enshrined his own personal ideology into the constitution of China. He has not cultivated anybody to succeed him. Um, he looks more and more like Mao. He looks more and more like Stalin. He looks more and more like Pol Pot uh, or, or Kim Jong Kim Jong Il. And this is something that we've seen in a lot of communist dictatorships, where there'll be this moment where they get very, very excessive in their repression. And Xi Jinping is that moment, and it will continue after him. Um, that there will be more Mao's or Xi Jinping's until the Chinese Communist Party disappears. But now you did mention when you were in China, things there was a more positive view of America. That's and now today, America is what's being targeted. Is that Xi Jinping or is that what inevitably would have happened? Um, well, nothing is inevitable in foreign policy or in history, right? So we can't say for sure. There's no you know, time machine that we could take back to 1980 or 1990 and just slip Xi Jinping a Mickey and have some other guy <laughs> come into power um, um, and succeed politically where he, where he failed. Uh, so we don't know. It, it's, it's a really terrific question. It's a really interesting question, Chris. Um, but I think it was highly likely to occur no matter who was in power. I think if if uh, somebody like Hu Jintao was in power or Bo Xilai or Li Keqiang or Wang Yang, whoever it was, whoever's in that seat is going to use these same tools because that's what they are. These are just instruments. They're, they're weapons. They're, they're tools of statecraft. Um, they get turned on the Uyghurs, on the Tibetans, on Falun Gong. They get turned on the Japanese. And of course, we've seen this extreme just terrible, monstrous anti-Japanese uh, sentiment get cultivated in China. And then from time to time, they will lash out at the Japanese. And now it's being turned on us uh, and it will be turned on others. It's been turned on Australia. You know, when the government of Australia reached out and they asked for an international, a free and open international investigation into the origins of the COVID-19 catastrophe, the pandemic, uh, that was China's government response was to lash out and instill a sense of anger in the Chinese people against the, the Aussies, who are some of the most wonderful people on the planet. Um, I mean, it's really hard not to like somebody from Australia. And, and that's what they've done. And so it just gets turned on, on one country after the next. Basically, anybody who doesn't do exactly what Beijing wants them to do uh, gets, gets victimized by this. I mean, if you think about it, like since their openly stated goal is, you know, some form of international communism, sooner or later, that is going to have to create a conflict with the West, with democracies. Yeah. It's, not, it's I mean, not a peaceful relationship. And I think as we had 
in our episode, the one that talked about Blinken's speech, I think this is one of the things where the current administration just doesn't understand why the CCP is always going to see the U.S. as an existential threat. Like, I feel like a lot of their, um, the speech was kind of trying to head off some Chinese propaganda, like the part about we are not trying to change China's like system of governance, et cetera, you know, trying to head off the propaganda that they're, uh, that this, the U.S. is calling for regime change in China, et cetera. But it doesn't matter what was in Blinken's speech in a certain sense. Like they would always accuse the U.S. of that because they just see the U.S. as an existential threat to their ideology, to their system of government because we are a liberal democracy and because the U.S. has historically, um, you know, been trying to... I mean, this sounds corny, but defend freedom around the world. Do you know what I mean? Like that has been U.S. foreign policy. And so like no matter how you try to say that, like we're not trying to challenge the CCP, the CCP is going to see you as, you know, the challenge. I mean, the U.S. has been trying to keep international shipping lanes open and free for decades. The Chinese Communist Party, especially in the South China Sea, wants to control them. Inevitably, that's going to be a conflict. You know, that's such an important point, Chris. Um, but before I jump in there, uh, I have to tell you, I'm very thirsty. So if it's okay with you guys, oh, I'd no. just like to take uh, a quick break here for a re refreshing drink here. Oh, um, good. Enjoy that. I bet it tastes better and cleaner. Yeah, you know, oh, it's funny. It's it's a China Uncensored mug. Yeah, th this... Um, this is my favorite mug. It really is. There, there's no better way to enjoy a cup of coffee or a cup of tea in the morning. I mean, it's pretty much how I start my every day. You know, the, the book, you know, this book here, the, the Final Struggle, I probably could not have completed it. Um, I just not, I would not have had the energy were it not for my daily cup of coffee in this particular mug. I mean, great things are possible for anyone who drinks out of such a mug. But gosh, Matt, is there a place where somebody watching could get a mug of their own? I, I suppose like if you were to somehow go to chinauncensored.tv slash merchandise, you might find it there along with a selection of, of T-shirts. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, that's, it's, if you just happen to go to, you know, accidentally type in chinauncensored.tv slash merchandise. Do you think if somebody were to do that, they would also write an incredible book about China? I, I would say, um, I don't want to get sued, but I do think it's inevitable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I also could not help but notice that unlike almost all other mugs on the market today, this mug is made proudly in the United States of America. Wow. Whoever made that decision must really know a lot about geopolitics. <laughs> that was so hard to find a mug. That was so hard. It was, it, was, it was incredibly difficult. Uh, get your own mug while you can. Supplies are limited and running out. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what were we talking about? Well, there, there is something I, I want to talk about because, I mean, with this, this book, you definitely have taken uh, the Chinese Communist Party's ambitions on a more global level. But I do want to get back to your other power alley, Taiwan. Um, just like the, you know, the, the Biden administration has, has definitely, I feel like they've really put their weight behind the strategic ambiguity 
idea with Taiwan because I have no idea what they're doing. Biden will say, oh, we absolutely have a commitment to defend Taiwan. And then, you know, the White House will say, there's been no change in policy. The State Department will have a page that says that where they remove, we do not support Taiwan independence. And then they put it back in. What's going on? Yeah, I think that that is the the question that everybody's asking right now is what in the world are they thinking? Uh, and nobody knows. It is very ambiguous, isn't it? Um, what you thinking, Blinken? Yeah, it's it's remarkable to hear our president say, and it's wonderful. Um, I, I'm encouraged to hear President Biden say that the U.S. will defend Taiwan. That if China invades yeah. Taiwan, the U.S. will intervene militarily in defense of democracy. Right. But then to have all other officials in the administration, from the State Department to the Pentagon to the National Security Council, and then to have them water it down or deny it or pretend like the president didn't say what he said or to pretend like he didn't mean what he said, even though he said it three times now publicly, very, very public forums and very actually quite clearly. Um, And what's also strange is that the U.S. government is not preparing accordingly. That you would think that if if our national objective was to defend democracy and to make sure Taiwan does not get invaded, President Biden would pick up the phone and call President Tsai when dozens of Chinese bombers are flying uh, towards Taiwan or around Taiwan on these very coercive operations that they're undertaking. But to our knowledge, that's not happened. There's not been a single phone call between President Biden and President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan. There's not even been a tweet. In fact, last summer, when the State Department had this campaign on Twitter where they were talking about all the countries in the world that have received free um, COVID vaccines from the United States, no strings attached, no political strings attached, there was a list. And Taiwan was on that list because the U.S. government's given Taiwan millions of, of Moderna shots. And initially in the tweet, you saw Taiwan's flag there along with the name of the country and the number of of vaccines that have been delivered by the U.S. government to Taiwan. And then within days, they took it down. And so Taiwan was the only country that they listed that had no flag. It was flagless. And this happens more recently when USTR has met with uh, their Chinese, uh, or excuse me, their, their Taiwanese counterpart in Taipei to talk about trade issues, bilateral trade issues. And you can see in the back of their Zoom call where the U.S. government official often will have an American flag pinned on their lapel or they'll have it in the background. In fact, you know, I should get an American flag for my, my office here. You guys should, too. We should all have American flags. But you won't see that. You won't see that with the Taiwanese. The Taiwanese are told by the U.S. State Department that they cannot wear ROC flags on their lapel. And they cannot have them in the in the backdrop if they want to have meetings with U.S. government officials. See, this, this is so insane to me. I, but I think like before that, it's like this this weird dichotomy of Biden saying stuff, and he's the president, so like he can kind of say what he wants, and that's kind of ish policy. And then everyone else walks it back. And I guess my concern is, you know, as I've said before, I I think it's not that likely. Uh, that Biden will still be uh, president president actively uh, at the end of the first term, just because I think he's he's quite old. 
uh, and, and he's maybe having potential cognitive problems. So when, when President Harris sort of inherits this, right? Like she's going to inherit, is she going to inherit Biden's like personal views or is she going to inherit this, this huge pressure of like the, what the administration, the, the rest of the administration wants our Taiwan relations to be? Yeah, I mean, I think it is pretty clear that Biden probably personally wants to defend Taiwan, like he wants the U.S. to defend Taiwan. But, you know, there is, I think this is kind of what you're talking about in the China policy community, Ian, like that, like at war itself, with itself thing going on, right? Where, like, there's probably a lot of differing opinions in the Biden administration. And then, uh, for example, it's always people in, like, the Treasury Department will have a very different um, view, Let's right? cut tariffs to fight inflation. And um, there's been even reporting, like anonymously sourced reporting, talking about conflicts between the U.S. Trade Representative and the Treasury Department mm. over tariffs and things like that. And I think that is not just something that happens in the Biden administration. It's pretty clear it's happening in the Trump administration, too. Oh, yeah. Peter that, Navarro versus Mnuchin. Mnuchin. Uh, Come on. Uh, but... Yeah, so there's this internal disagreement and you don't know who's going to come out on top. Well, usually the president kind of has to say, de- right? Has to decide, right? I mean, ultimately they they all work for the president. Uh so Biden saying stuff is like the most powerful thing. Um You would because, hope so. In this case you would certainly hope so, but unfortunately yeah. that's actually not proven to be the case. I mean, if it was true that U.S. intended to defend Taiwan militarily, why is it we don't do ship visits with the Taiwanese? Why is it we don't have any troops there at all, other than a very small contingent of special operations forces? Uh, Why don't we do liaison with them? Why are our generals and admirals not meeting with their generals and admirals, right? And the list goes on and on. Why is this administration cut back on arms sales to Taiwan? You know, there's a lot of things that's very self-contradictory. Well, there's a there's a good reason for that. If we were to take such aggressive action like that, that could actually make China launch an invasion. It's like that's what happens. It's like with with Ukraine. We don't want to support have NATO support for Ukraine. Otherwise, Putin would invade. Yeah, no, I, it makes a lot of sense, Chris. Yeah, that that's the crazy logic that unfortunately exists. I mean, you know, when I was doing research for for the this book, the, the final struggle. Um, I have a chapter where I talk about the way in which the Chinese Communist Party and actually the Chinese military industrial complex has been able to infiltrate U.S. critical infrastructure. One of the things I came across that just blew my mind was that you have a Chinese defense company, state-owned enterprise, so it's literally an arm of, of the Chinese government that is selling gantry cranes that dominate every single container port in, in America today, every single one. All of our major container ports ports use these smart, automated gantry cranes that are made by China's defense industrial complex. What's even crazier about that is the parent company to that company. So the company's uh, ZPMC, the parent company, which is the whole owner of ZPMC, uh, is China Communications Construction Corporation, CCCC. And that company is actually blacklisted by the Pentagon. In the summer of 2020, the Pentagon said, this company is blacklisted. Uh, It cannot do business in the United States because we know as part of China's military industrial complex, 
This is the same company that built those artificial islands in the South China Sea, which have now been heavily militarized. It's the same company that is in, in actually engaging with the PLA in preparations to invade Taiwan, because what they do is they take a lot of their ships and they'll mobilize them. They're all considered reserve uh, assets it, and the Chinese military can come in and, and take them over and use them for military operations. And they do. And they do this regularly. They, they train to do it regularly. Um, but in this case, they gave the wholly owned subsidiary of the company a pass. So they continue to sell their gantry cranes to cities and port authorities across America and really and across the world as well. So, so you're saying that for with all these ports in the U.S., they've got these smart, like software operated gantry cranes. Are you suggesting that maybe like we don't update the software? Uh, I'm suggesting that it's insane that we're doing business with the Chinese military. What would be that, the, like what, what could China do with that? Well, the first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna take the money that our, our port authorities are giving to them. So Seattle, Long Beach, Savannah, Miami, um, that they're actually helping this company make money and they can take that money um, and they can invest it into military operations and intelligence gathering operations. They can use it to beef up their concentration camp network in, in China. So they have here we have a case of American cities, in this case, and port authorities and companies actually investing in a Chinese military company. What they could also do and what they're likely to do is install, to your point, Matt, to install Trojan horses and back doors um, into all of those smart gantry crates. They have two uh, major suppliers, one in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and one in Los Angeles, where they have th this company, the state-owned enterprise, Chinese enterprise, has very large uh, supply uh, depots. And so that allows employees of, of the Chinese government to service not only their own cranes, CPMC cranes, but other cranes as well. So when cranes break down or when they need a new chip or a new component, uh, you actually have Chinese government employees go in to ports uh, across America and they have a deal with the Longshoremen's uh, Association or unions, whoever controls that, to do this. And so absolutely, they, they could install uh, malicious software backdoors into those, and that could be used Obviously, in an extreme case, not only to monitor what's going on in the ports, but actually in a crisis or in a conflict to, um, to sabotage those ports. I mean, just uh, like imagine if they could shut down even one port, but they could shut down like like I remember um, it was several months ago. I was flying into San Francisco uh, over the San Francisco Bay and I saw like a dozen container ships just lined up. Uh, like sitting in the bay with fully fully loaded crates, like waiting to get into the port because things were really backed up, right? And like there was this whole supply chain crisis that like there was only like a few ports that were really having this, like San Francisco, LA, uh, but like it caused an absolute supply chain crisis in this country because it's not just getting stuff imported from China, it's, it's imported from anywhere in the world, right? And even imported from other parts of the United States taken by ship. So like to to be able to even temporarily, even for like one day, you can shut down, you know, the ports. It's like, it's just, we're so reliant on it. It's unbelievable how we got, how like, 
I, I just, I just marvel at the, at the raw power of stupidity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it should be common sense, right? It's just common sense. If you're the U S and you say this other country is hostile and it's a authoritarian rival state that you don't buy equipment from their military and you don't plug that equipment into your port facilities. But Ian, it's slightly cheaper. It is slightly cheaper and that's the problem. And so uh, I actually asked the Pentagon about this um, and they said, yes, this is a significant concern. But to the earlier discussion, they just get one vote and other, other arms of the US government it's an interagency process and others also get a vote. And at the end of the day, they often vote for whatever is cheaper. You know, they let the market dominate. They let the market decide, uh, as do many companies around America. And when you do that, you're in a, a space now that can be manipulated and you can become prey for predatory Chinese economic policies because Chinese companies don't have to make a profit. They're supported by the state. What their task is, is to dominate market, to, to, to undermine their rivals, ultimately to take over their rivals, the way GE Appliances has been taken over by its Chinese state-run enterprise rival, Hiar. So even though it still says GE Home on it, when you buy um, you know, an oven or a washer dryer uh, or anything else for your kitchen, that's actually you're buying from the Chinese government. Uh, the same has happened for personal computers in America. So Lenovo dominates that space. Lenovo is a military-linked company that's been blacklisted by the Pentagon. Uh, but they dominate uh, the commercial market. Uh, and that's happened to so many uh, of America's leading uh, commercial enterprises because the U.S. government has allowed it to happen and the U.S. Congress has allowed it to happen. Uh, convincing itself that we should just follow market imperatives, that's fine if you're dealing with other capitalist countries that follow the same rules and have the same norms and beliefs that, that you do. It's fine if you're dealing with another country that actually respects the World Trade Organization. In China's case, that's not the case at all. Well, I mean, it, it, it almost seems hopeless. Like, how can you counter this, as Matt says, this overwhelming tidal wave of <laughs> stupidity? Yeah, it's, it should be common sense, right? Common sense, you don't want, <laughs> you don't want the PLA in your critical infrastructure. Uh, and it's not just gantry cranes, guys. It's the trains. Um, it is uh, prison systems that use communications from communication systems from China. It's our police departments, our, it's our fire departments, it's banks, it's hotels, uh, it's our grocery stores, our hospitals. Uh, the list goes on and on. And, and I talk about that in the book and I tell some illustrative stories so the reader can kind of get a sense of just how fundamentally uh, compromised actually our society is and just how much leverage China's government has and what a big deal this is and how we need to change the way we do business. I mean, essentially China's military, China has already invaded America. Digitally, yes. Digitally, yes. And in terms of products, hard, hardware, software, uh, apps, yeah, they're already in our homes and in all of our communities. Hey, TikTok. Yeah. TikTok is a, is a great example of that, right? You've had over 100 million downloads of, of TikTok in America. And TikTok's parent company works for the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, they developed Total Shimwen, the 
which is meant to manipulate the news. It's a, it's a censorship <laughs> algorithm. It's very, very powerful. It's backed by the state. And now Americans have willingly put that into their lives. A lot of Americans, especially teenagers, and you know, studies that have been done by researchers who I footnote in the book, uh, have looked at the fine print for what Americans are signing on to when they download Totiao. Uh, oh, excuse me, when they download uh, the subsidiary of, of uh, Totiao, when they download TikTok. Um, and what they're signing on to is the hemorrhaging of their own personal private information, their voice print, their face print, and all their data on their phone. Yeah, actually, someone asked us uh, the other day, like, are you, you, know, are you guys going to go to VidCon at the end of June? And it's I'm a, like, a YouTube conference. Yeah, but but that YouTube conference is presented by TikTok, which is a Chinese yeah. company. I mean, it, the like, conference is not put on by TikTok, but they're like the main sponsor. Right. So, like, like of course we weren't invited. Well, just like ha hackers, for example, um, like the '90s movie or the people. No, like the the, the uh, hackers conferences in wow. the United States, uh, DefCon, for example, and used to be in Las Vegas. Sometimes they still host it in Las Vegas. It's a really big deal for the hacker community, and uh, you know the, the the best and the brightest geeks and and um, and techies out there. They'll go to this, and you'll have NSA there. You'll have Department of Homeland Security there recruiting, um, and you'll have hackers from around the world that will get together there. Uh, cybersecurity companies, of course. Well, that that event was actually bought out by Baidu, oh, which of God. course is, mm -hmm. is controlled by China's government. And so the the last one of the last big uh, hacker conventions in the world before the pandemic hit was hosted in Beijing. And then you had the Chinese military there and Chinese intelligence services there actively recruiting hackers in California. And from Silicon Valley to, to join them in their efforts. Oh. And, and people had no idea who they're dealing with. They thought, well, this is, they're just normal companies like us. But again, these are not actual companies. These are fronts for the regime. If anyone should be able to figure that out, it should be the hackers. Mm. You, you would think so. You would think so. But apparently hackers may, may be really good at the digital world maybe a little less well-educated on the political world. But again, who are we to blame them if our own leading politicians in the U.S. government, the State Department and, and elsewhere, you know, these are some of the best and the brightest minds in the foreign policy space, even if they're being suckered into these arrangements with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, even the U.S. military, you never think of the U.S. military as being full of naive people. You don't think of generals and admirals as being naive, right? You think of them as being very hard, no, you know, very hard headed and smart and pragmatic, but actually even the U S military is getting a lot of its supplies from China. That's, I mean, that tells me we really need to focus on more diversity and inclusivity in the military. That's the biggest problem. Uh, Ian, how do we wake up? Well, I think drink your coffee from a mug. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, when I wake up in the morning, it's with a <laughs> cup of coffee in this mug. No, I, I would say, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to public education. And I'm biased, of course, because that's the space that, that I live in. Um, but I do. I think that matters a great deal. We need to educate the American public. So if everybody watches China Uncensored and listens to China Unscripted, 
uh, I think we'll be in a much, much better place. Well, thank you for joining us, Ethan. Like the- Ethan? <laughs> Let's try that again. I need We've my, I need my comment. You would be the first years. person to call me Ethan, Chris. <laughs> uh, Chris is just so so depressed now I, I, I am well also i'm depressed because there there was there's still so much that uh i wanted to talk to you about like in the book like china's uh expanding military bases around the world what they're doing in the pacific there's I mean, your book is chock full there could be another podcast we could do a sequel we could and people should also read the book i to get all the stuff yeah if you guys want to do part two at some point i'd, I'd be delighted to do it either up there in the bunker uh, where you guys are in the woods or or down here in Virginia. So I'd be happy to do another one. Well, fantastic. I like to I like to hear that. Uh, yeah, because there is there is seriously a lot we did not have time to really get into. So much. Uh, and especially like it just kind of paints a picture of how China is really trying to dominate the global supply chain. If they take Taiwan, if they have all this influence in the Pacific, and the, the military bases on the South China Sea, military bases around the world, cranes in the U.S. and U.S. ports, they will have total control over global shipping. <laughs> oh, the Belt and Road. And also telecommunications, right? I mean, Huawei yeah. and ZT is everywhere. Uh, Which is a huge grid. part of Belt and Road. Oh, absolutely. And also the utility providers. So China Grid is is providing electricity to, to countries around the world from Australia to the Philippines to countries across Africa and South America. Um, ZT and, and Huawei just dominate uh, countries around the world. Um, and the list just goes on and on. They're getting into every uh, every place they possibly can to make people dependent on Beijing. I mean, and that's that's to me kind of the point of of your book that China, China's goal is world domination, international communism, and they are doing a great job at <laughs> making that happen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's basically a puff piece for this, for the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause we, I mean, it's it, not looking good. <laughs> no, it, no, it I, is, it's very disquieting. I mean, I think readers, I, I know from people who I've, I've spoken to and listening to you guys, uh, you do read this book, um, and I certainly felt this way when I was writing it, and you, you, it's dark. It's a dark story. It's a scary story. It's not what I intended when I set out with the, the project. I, I thought it would be much more optimistic, much more upbeat, but that's not what I discovered um, as, I, as I worked on this. But at the end of the day, there are things that our policymakers can do that Congress can do, that the White House can do uh, to put us on a much better path. And I also talk about that in the last chapter of the book. And so I'm worried about where we are today, but I'm optimistic about the future if we do take the threat seriously. You know, if, if we continue to convince ourselves that we're exceptional and the president has this emergency um, miracle button in a vault in the White House and every time we face another Nazi Germany or Cuba missile crisis or anything like that. We can just hit the, <laughs> hit the miracle button um, and no sacrifice required and no investments required, no reforms, no painful decisions required on our part. Um, I think if we continue to have that kind of mentality and if we continue to have wishful thinking about China, um, then we're going to be in for a world of hurt. And so I, I think that's why it's so important that, uh, again, People need to 
I hope they do educate themselves and our policymakers and our leaders across all sectors of American society, um, I hope will act accordingly and start to, to reform. So where can people follow you and pick up a copy of the book? Oh, absolutely. So if, if you're interested, please do. It's it's on Amazon. It's on you know, Barnes & Noble has it on their website. Uh, independent booksellers sell it. The publisher is a wonderful independent bookseller, Camphor Press, uh, Eastbridge Books. Uh, published it. They're a wonderful team. So if you want to support a small independent publishing house that focuses on East Asia and that believes in freedom of the press and freedom of expression, counter-authoritarian, then uh, please go directly to their website uh, at camphorpress.com. Uh, and please consider following me. Uh, I'm on Twitter. And uh, my work is also uh, published quite regularly at the Project 2049 Institute. Well, thanks again, Ian. It's been great having you on. And yeah, I guess we'll have to get you on soon for part two. I would be delighted to do that. Love to continue the conversation. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Wow. People really are stupid, I guess. They like a good deal, Chris. But they, why don't they see what this is inevitably leading to? Because I think most people don't think about, you know, that we're locked in a global struggle with an authoritarian regime. Look, China's not <laughs> like, communist anymore. I've, They're just like us. We they got it with make the money. Soviet Union. Why don't we get it with China? Well, I mean, messaging for the government. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, like a lot of pop popular culture was about the Cold War, during the Cold War, right? Yeah. And also it was, I think, a lot more visible, like the Iron Curtain, like the things that are happening, not just in the Soviet Union, but what they were doing around the world. Cuba, that was a big threat to the U.S. You know what I mean? Like there was things that seemed more immediate and threatening. China, it seems like, oh, look, they have all these great cities and they make a lot of products. And, yeah, you I mean, know. I guess like if China stationed nukes in Cuba, that would be very clear. But the Chinese military controlling cranes in, in ports, that doesn't have the same kind of, you know. Yeah. Like Even though it is just, it can be just as devastating to the country. Well, I mean, nuclear weapons. But complete supply chain collapse. Yeah, if 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 an enemy controls our ports, our prisons, the communication uh, for our hospitals. for our hospitals and police and fire departments, uh, and our power grid, I I would say that the like the loss of life won't look. It'll be real. There'll be a real loss of life, but it won't be so obviously connected. It won't be so extreme and visually shocking I mean, as like a nuclear war. I, th I think it would be a catastrophic loss of life. It just oh, won't oh, be yeah. a gigantic crater and explosion. Right. So, you know, it's, so there's really nothing to worry about. I mean, I, I just think that for the average American person, you can't really blame them. The U.S. military buying products from the Chinese them. military, you, that yeah, seems that's, especially that's, bad. That's stupid. Yeah, it's really stupid. But it's like Ian mentioned, like, you know, the Pentagon knows the risks of China, China's essentially state making the cranes in our ports. That's a problem. But they only have one vote. Yeah. I mean, we've we've had people on this show who, you know, are retired U.S. military because uh, active duty people typically like it's very hard to get them on. But like like the people we've interviewed, like they're very clear headed. 
But a lot of times they'll say things like, oh, you know, I was in the U.S. Navy intelligence for like decades and I kept saying China's a huge threat. China's a huge threat. And it only gets so far up because ultimately it's the civilian government, the White House, that's like, yeah, but don't talk about that. But, oh, we're not going to fund that. We're going to move ships from Asia to Europe or like, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, Clint Clinton's whole thing about how, you know, well, oh, he really screwed us. You know, what's interesting about Clinton's whole idea that opening our like economy, like opening up China's economy will make them more like us. It worked exactly the opposite way. Exactly. Yeah. Like we are so vulnerable to a global communist takeover. Yeah, but we're also like we I think your point is like we've become more authoritarian and like more like censorship happy, that sort of thing, like more like the way China does it than the way that America did it before is kind of what you're saying. Is that the point you were making? Right? Well, is it, yeah, we are being influenced culturally by the Chinese Communist Party, the way that we thought that we were going to culturally influence uh, the Chinese regime and make it, you know, democratic and free. Yeah. What Ian was saying about like the first man. That's a, a fantastic example. Well, I do think that that also has an echo. I mean, that's not all the CCP. There's like, there are people in the U.S. who think that about the U.S., right? So it, there's that's an true. audience for it. And I mean, that is something that was pushed by the Soviet Union and now by China. So definitely this view of like, oh, you shouldn't show like patriotic symbols. America's actually really evil. That's been weaponized against us. Yeah, that has. I mean, of course, like the flip side is there are Chinese people inside China who believe in freedom and, and you know, a democracy led by the people. Like there are a lot of people I believe that, that, that think that way, but their voices are completely suppressed in China, right? Whereas in the US, because we already have this freedom, your view that America's the worst country and should have less freedom is allowed to be uh, spoken freely and even celebrated. And I'm not saying we should take away people's freedom of speech, but it's just like, there are people with all sorts of different views in different countries, but it's only in the, in the small number of countries in the free world where you can actively express those things. So like, of course, you know, dictatorships all say, oh, like our system is the best. And then some Americans say that that's the best too, right? So you have like this, this, there's a force behind it. Did that make any sense? Well, you actually did manage to give me a little bit of hope after all this, because, uh, you know, inside China, there are people who are resisting in whatever way they can. And the Chinese Communist Party is, you know, despite their success at uh, taking over the world because of our own ineptitude, they are also pretty inept in their own ways. And like their economy runs on debt. No one saw uh, the Soviet <laughs> Union collapse. Yeah, I mean, there and are, it happened. There and are so, weaknesses. Yeah, there are weaknesses, and like it could just happen one day that like internal things just make the Communist Party collapse, and then like all these systems that they've developed around the world, like it won't matter. But the, you know, we could help that along by not pumping money into their system. Yeah. Like not pumping billions of dollars into their system constantly. Yeah, that would, that would help. But yeah. But, but you know, like when China's economy was doing 
well, like in the 2000s, it was kind of like they were growing fast. Like, okay, well, that seems like a good time to put money into China. But now with, with the COVID lockdowns and their economy is really, really struggling, it's like, well, now is a good time to invest in China also because the prices are low and you can only go up from here. So yeah. it's a it's a great deal no matter when. We were trying to end on a note of hope. Yeah, and my hope is that I can invest money in China and make lots of money. Okay, so that that does give me hope again because maybe it'll collapse, completely unrelated to anything we do because we're idiots, and then everyone who has put a lot of money and really gotten close to the regime will just be so absolutely screwed. And then we can launch them into space. That's hope. That, that went in just such a different direction. Like into the sun, into space. Not like a seed ship. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is a great example of how if you listen to the end of China Unscripted, it inevitably goes so far off the rails. We had just... so many opportunities to end it before this. So many. <laughs> well, it's, it's that there will be justice in this world. The, 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 the arc of like it bends towards justice. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Yeah. yeah. Let's hope. Because otherwise, if China takes over the world, we are really screwed. Uh, thank you for supporting China Unscripted. Uh, you can buy merchandise at chinauncensored.tv slash merchandise or support us on Patreon and Locals. Good Lord, we need the help. <laughs> Thanks for watching. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley John. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll see you next time.